Hello and welcome to the Audio Journal of Fertility. I'm Peter Goodwin. Our scientific editor for this edition is Masood Afnan from Birmingham Women's Hospital. A short while ago, an important event took place in Manchester. A warm welcome to you all to this first British Fertility Society masterclass ever. Masood Afnan, architect of a new masterclass on reproductive endocrinology, launching the occasion in Manchester. And he went on to brief the attending experts on what was about to happen. Exploration of how best to run IVF cycles and ovulation induction programmes, how to optimise and individualise therapies, and have the science background to understand why to adopt particular strategies. The thinking behind all of this was that I wanted to get people together who just wanted to know the answer. They've got all these questions, they want to know what's the best way forward, how can we best help our patients. To help us do this, I've got two of the people whom I think are the best around uh, as clinical scientists to help us uh, do this, Richard Fleming and Johann Smits. Masood Afnan, and right at the beginning of this British Fertility Society's masterclass, I asked him just what he was hoping to get out of it all. I'm hoping to achieve answers to questions. For those of us who really want to know how we can best serve our patients, how we can address those issues that we're just not sure about, and we want to ask an expert, so we come here and we ask the expert. Now, sometimes they'll know, sometimes it'll be opinion, but actually what I'm finding is that often they will have the evidence. They will be able to point us to the evidence and say, this is what is in the literature. And we can then go away, look it up, explore it further, and then decide how to best treat our patients. Now, as I understand it, this is something where clinicians will be giving scientists a grilling. That, that's, that's true. We've got the two scientists who we've... Well, I'd put them as... We have two clinical scientists whom we have invited. There's Professor Richard Fleming from Glasgow and Professor Johann Smits from Brussels. Uh, and these are people who are really recognised for their uh, knowledge, understanding and being at the, at the leading edge of uh, the developments. So they've been asked to come in front of us clinicians who, who are involved in everyday practice to answer our questions with an evidence base as opposed to just an opinion. And you have some of Britain's finest brains in fertility here in the audience and they've put a whole battery of questions up as candidates. Can you run me through what, say, perhaps two or three of these do you think are the most crucial ones that we need to look at at this masterclass? You are absolutely right. We have clinicians uh, from across the, the UK who are here. We have those that very experienced professors, and we have some of us who are just starting off in our careers. So we have the full range. The types of questions that we want to know the answers to are things like, uh, how can we best stimulate our patients before they come through for their IVF treatment cycles? How can we monitor them uh, as simply as possible but still very effectively? Uh, How can we improve the pregnancy rates? Uh, How can we reduce the risks associated uh, with uh, assisted conception? Um, These are all really important questions. Many of us have different views on it, but actually we want to know what's the evidence. 
The quest for improving the evidence base for assisted reproduction was at the heart of the meeting. First to talk was Johann Smits from University Hospital at the Free University of Brussels, and I met up afterwards with him, together with Masoud Afnan. And Masoud asked him first about the data he'd just been presenting. I was really impressed with the ideas that you uh, put forward to us, that you gave us in your presentation. When you talked about the development of the egg and the factors, the oocyte-secreting factors, with special uh, significance maybe for in vitro maturation. And you gave some anecdote about in the early days of the culture they used to add LH but there are no LH receptors in, in, the, in the cells. So uh, maybe if you could just explain some of that. What we know now for many years is how to use uh, LH and FSH for uh, ovarian stimulation. But if you go throughout literature, you come to the point that how these drugs might act at the level of the target cells is still not completely known. And regarding factors that are made by the oocyte and that have been only uh, brought up um, in the last few years, what is interesting is to uh, try to look how these factors in the oocyte are changed by the different uh, protocols that we use of LH and FSH. And why are these uh, oocyte secreted factors so important? It is because um, these oocyte secreted factors make a very special environment around the oocyte. Could you name names and say w which specific factors you think are emerging as really important ones? Those that we already uh, have documented quite well are factors such as GDF9, that stands for Growth and Differentiation Factor 9, and BMP15, stands for Bone Morphogenetic Protein 15, but there are many others of that same family, and this is the so-called TGF-beta superfamily of factors. They seem to um, condition the close environment around the oocyte, so the cumulus cells, and it creates a very special environment that we could eventually disturb when we use uh, gonadotrophins or other stimulation regimens in an inappropriate way. You also mentioned in an, another of your pr uh, presentations about the EGF family. What are they and how would they fit in? Yes, it was. Uh, these are also quite recent studies that were done by Marco Conti in Stanford. In fact, it's only in uh, 2003, 4, 5 that this group published a lot on the importance of so-called EGF-like factors that are produced under the influence of LH or HCG at the level of the mural cells of the follicle, so TICA and granulosa cells, and that have uh, an effect at the level of the cumulus cells. So they are produced by mural cells under influence of LH, and they have a direct effect at the level of cumulus and oocyte. So presumably these factors would probably be critical for in vitro maturation. Exactly, because um, 
some groups are starting now to purify these factors uh, like GDF9, MBMP15 and to add it to a culture medium where they mature uh, all sites in or embryos and they found that the blastocyst rate can be increased so apparently these factors play a very important role in all site competence. Now this very elegant scientific work that you're accumulating and the work of a number of groups, how is this impacting in the clinic already? Well, it, can, it will have its impact on different ways. First of all, it seems that if we add some of these factors that apparently are produced too less in some all sites because we are not treating them uh, gently enough, if we add them, apparently you can recover some of the potencies of the oocyte. And secondly, it could reveal us some markers in the cumulus cells which could have a predictive potency for the uh, oocyte competence. Wow. Uh, I mean, these are things that I guess I, we've not even thought of as yet. So, But you can see them coming in in the next two, three years. Exactly, yes, and we have to, what, what in the first phase interests myself is how our stimulation regimes that we use every day in our patients, how they in fact uh, are modifying the normal secretion of, of these factors. Dare I ask if there are important messages that can be applied by practicing clinicians right now, emerging from some of this, this science? Yes, because now that we are going to measure these, we can compare it what we know as being the standard, uh, the ideal oocyte. And I mean, if a certain regime is changing uh, the quality of the oocyte and we find any relation to these factors, we will better um, understand how to correct eventually our, our treatment uh, regimes. You see, I'd always thought in terms of hormones, Whereas what you're doing is you're taking it to the level of the glycoprotein, which comes about as a result of stimulation of the hormones. And so if we can add in the glycoprotein to the culture media, for example, that might result in improved blastocyst rates, as you've suggested. And as you said, it might rescue. So maybe the development is more in the laboratory and what will happen in the culture media rather than what we as clinicians would do. But that would have a tremendous effect potentially on pregnancy rates, implantation rates, move us more towards single embryo transfer with more confidence, would you think? Surely one of the goals is to come to one single embryo transfer and choosing out of that core to the, the embryo with the highest uh, implantation and potential but also developmental potential later on leading to a healthy child. I suppose the other exciting point in terms of um, the benefits from this science and this technology is not just in, in effectiveness but in safety. So if we can do in vitro culture and match mature pegs, that may be safer than giving the patient the drugs. We can just give the eggs the drugs. Um, so that and also presumably it will be a lot cheaper and, and make the technology more available to more people. Well, yes, it might mean on the long run that we are uh, more gentle to, to our uh, female patients. Uh, probably we might use uh, less uh, aggressively the, the drugs that we are using now. And the point that you raise is also very important, that by 
doing an intelligent uh, in vitro culture, we might perhaps uh, compensate some of the defects that we that that are induced by by the in vivo treatments so by the pharmacological treatments so the two workers the gynecologist and the embryologist uh, will probably be able to collaborate better in the near future in the interest of getting a, a more healthy oocyte interestingly both linked by the endocrinologist yes yes <laughs> Johan Smits from the Free University of Brussels and Birmingham's own Masoud Afnan. So, how was the first ever masterclass going down with the expert clinicians attending it? I asked one of them, Gedis Grzinskas, what he made of the scientific insights we'd just been gaining in Manchester and their potential impact in the clinic. Well, what has surprised me uh, is how much of our clinical practice is not evidence-based. Uh, the two uh, masters uh, have provided a scientific basis and perspective for us to explore our clinical practice. And the surprising thing has been that only a small proportion of our clinical practice is evidence-based. This has allowed one to examine one's own practice uh, and its inflexibility. What I have taken from the meeting is uh, the fact that many of those treatment strategies that I and others like me may have considered are set in stone are in fact not. Could you give me some examples? Yes. Uh, a good example has been in relation to the duration of usage of the LHRH antagonist. I was of the view that it should not be used for longer than six days. I've learned that it can be used for at least 21 days without any detriment to the outcome of the treatment. This is a very important, small but very practical fact. The other important uh, point that has arisen from the meeting is in relation to diagnosis and assessment and Dr. Fleming's presentation on anti-mullerian hormone and the strategies that he uses has provided me with a valuable opportunity to look at again, look again at my own practice with respect to diagnostic tests and their frequency. Do you see AMH as guiding therapy in the near future more than perhaps it has done up to now? Absolutely. Uh, the uh, usage of AMH in the clinical context which Dr Fleming has described is a very clear advance in the management of subfertile couples. Dr Fleming's work has found a clinical place for this very interesting hormone, biologically, but in a diagnostic sense. Right, that's one piece of evidence-based medicine. Are there other pieces of data and evidence-based medicine that you would quote that should be taken more notice of? Well, I, I think reviewing our practice, as we've had the opportunity in a small group today, has led me to think that we must be much more vigorous in establishing a base uh, an evidence base for our clinical practice. Otherwise, it's anecdote uh, and apparent authority. What is important for us to be able to do is to be able to be very clear in our advice to patients about what the limits are, how much flexibility there is. We don't have enough authority yet to be able to say that confidently to patients. And so, currently, we're probably doing too, not probably, we are doing too many tests. 
how many of these can we reduce? How can we make the whole process more patient sensitive and less invasive? Uh, that's not clear yet, but it will be from the lessons of masterclasses like today. Gedis Grzynskis from the Bridge Centre, and he mentioned anti-Mullerian hormone, AMH, which received a lot of attention at this masterclass. Well, the second speaker was Richard Fleming from Glasgow University, for whom AMH is a passion. And after his lecture, I talked with him, again in the company of Masood Afnan. I asked Masood first what had seemed to him, drawing from Richard's lecture, the main importance of AMH. I was very excited to hear the presentation because what it told me, so with a single measurement, blood measurement, months ahead of the treatment cycle, we could categorize the patients into poor responders, normal responders, high responders, adjust the start dose accordingly of stimulation with gonadotrophin, and then we can safely stimulate them. I think the prevention of ovarian hyperstimulation was very exciting, but also not wasting high doses of, uh, of gonadotrophins on these patients. So for me, just to be able to categorize so categorically and so discriminatorily was just fantastic. Now, Richard, could you say in a nutshell, you've just delivered a sparkling talk about AMH which possibly is emerging as the test of choice. Could you summarise what it is and, and what are the important new discoveries that you've made about it? Well, AMH is a glycoprotein. It's a member of the TGF-beta superfamily of reproductive growth factors. Its great facility for the clinic is that it's produced by the granulosa cells of non of follicles just before they become sensitive to FSH. So in the circulation, it's a fairly constant marker of how much granulosa cell activity there is in that, in that woman's ovaries. And it's consistent and it declines with age in parallel to the numbers of ovarian follicles that remain in the woman's ovaries. And in that respect, it is predictive of the numbers of eggs you can get when you put a woman through the stimulation with FSH. What I've done is use that value to determine the idealized protocol of stimulation. So I haven't discovered anything new about it, it's just I've used it as an application to modify how we, how we stimulate women. It seems you have some very firm views about it, though. Masood, can I bring you in here? And um, what, to you, are, are things you'd like to ask, Richard? Um, so, I, I think what's... I mean, there are issues about doing the assay, and it's quite a difficult assay to, to just set up, and it's quite expensive. So if we are going to move to it, then there will be a cost implication, so we've got to see the benefits. Uh, and I guess at some point, for those of us working in the public sector in the NHS, we need to be able to demonstrate that it's a cost-effective thing to do. So I think that's one important point that needs to be addressed. So, Richard? Yeah. Um, it replaces other measurements that you've been doing, which are possibly predictive of a woman's poor response, and that's as far as they can ever tell you. The great facility of AMH is that it replaces all of those multiple 
uh, hormone assessments that people put themselves through with a single measurement. Yes, it's more expensive, but it is what it adds is a completely different domain. It adds the ability to determine whether a woman is going to be a normal responder or an excess responder. And in terms of cost effectiveness, it's you, you can virtually eliminate ovarian hyperstimulation by modifying your protocol and therefore the cost effectiveness as far as the NHS is concerned is enormous. So it's outside of the laboratory costs there are other clinical benefits from using it to predetermine your treatment strategy and I would add it's not the starting dose that's the critical element it's the protocol that you use in these high responding in the high responding cohort of patients okay so with the protocol that you've just mentioned this is looking at using antagonists rather than agonists in the high responders is that right yes there has been uh, an indication and there have been suggestions from the literature that antagonist protocols are responsible for lower uh, ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. When you can categorize your patients who are specifically at risk of OHSS, you can see the effect is most dramatic. Okay, so I can see the benefit with the high responders. How about with the group in the middle, which are the vast majority of our patients who are going to be normally responding? Does it make any difference what we do for our stimulation protocol, either dose of FSH or agonist versus antagonist? Does it matter? The true scientific answer to that is that I don't know. Um, however, there are a couple of observations that can be made from this stu first study. And that is that we, we, for that normal responding group, we used a standard agonist protocol. And what has come out of that is that that agonist protocol has suddenly become completely uncomplicated. There are no poor responders in there. There's no cancellation because of poor response and there's no anxiety of excess response and overstimulation. So you've suddenly turned an agonist, which is a relatively risky, potentially risky uh, treatment method, into a, a safe and reliable treatment protocol. So even just by selecting out your patients at, at each end of the spectrum, you have turned that into a most reliable and very comfortable treatment program. Could I get both of you to pull together what you think are the important strands, the take-home messages about AMH that you both now feel are consensus here today? Uh, Masood? Well, with the data that Richard presented, I think it is the one single test that we should all be doing prior to an IVF treatment cycle, that it allows us to categorize our patients to their stimulation uh, treatment before egg collection, not just FSH but agonist and antagonist, and it is safe. It makes treatment safe for these patients. Yeah, uh, that's, that's the thing that I'm most thrilled about. I, I, having worked for a long time, I've rarely been so convinced of, a, of an absolute benefit of, of any single uh, either measurement or phenomenon. It, it, I, I'm, I'm very, very thrilled by, by the, uh, what's happened. Our program uh, is a, it works entirely in the private domain and there's a lot of hostility to, to the private uh, uh, IVF sector in, amongst the local um, gynaecologists because their anxiety about receiving women with OHSS and that virtually doesn't happen now 
throughout our whole treatment program. So to us, it's mandatory. We must know that patient's AMH before we treat her. One of the really difficult areas for us as clinicians is telling patients no, that they won't be able to, they don't stand a chance of conceiving if we were to treat them. And one of the things I got out from this lecture is that with an AMH less than 1.1, I think Richard said, um, that they didn't have any patient who ever conceived. So how confident are you, Richard, to say no to these patients that we should not treat them with IVF? How absolute is, is that? Scott Nelson and I have both come to that same conclusion and we do not offer stimulated treatment to women who've got, who've got an AMH of less than 1.1 picomoles per litre. When we've breached that rule, it is con every single time it has confirmed that it was the wrong decision to make. Scott now measures the AMH in his patients on the NHS waiting list to be able to advise them that if they have this low level of AMH, they will not be receiving NHS-funded treatment. I think that's a very sensible thing to do. Richard Fleming talking with me, together with Masood Afnan, during the first-ever British Fertility Society Masterclass held in Manchester. Well, that very special event stimulated me to drop in on the European Society of Human Reproduction and Embryology meeting in Barcelona, Eshri. It was a treasure trove of new clinical and scientific announcements. And just for starters, here are two from one of the sessions I went to. The first was about why your patient may respond normally or abnormally to ovarian stimulation with FSH. This could be because of gene expression, according to Maria Laliotti, who presented new data on this in Barcelona. She told me about the expression of so-called FSH receptor splice variants in cell culture and how this can translate into the extremes of response to FSH in patients, poor response or hyperstimulation. Originally, our preliminary study was a clinical study where we took women uh, under the age of 35. We plotted all of our results over a period of four years on a plot to see what is the mean uh, number of eggs and what is the 25% lower cutoff and the 25% higher cutoff. So we took those cutoffs that in our case were seven eggs lower and 18 eggs higher. And we collected, uh, we recruited women that fell all along the spectrum because we wanted the lower and the higher and the control in the middle. And we isolated cells, we isolated cumulus cells that surround the oocyte after IVF. Can you remind me why you were doing this? Since uh, all people with IVF are treated mainly with FSH um, to stimulate oocyte growth, we wanted to see if the receptor of the FSH, which is the first uh, signaling molecule uh, downstream of the actual treatment, has any differences between people that uh, undergo IVF. So you found the uh, good responders and the poor responders. Uh, what in fact did you find and what do you imply from this? So uh, first I have to say that what it is known is that the FSH receptor has two common polymorphisms in the population and those common polymorphisms do change the response of FSH. Now in addition to those, what we found is a number of splice variants, that means that the gene is not spliced correctly but it has omitted some uh, actions in patients that, uh, um, that have either low response 
or high response to FSH. And the variant is not the same between them. Uh, different people have one variant and different people have the other variant. And what did you find? So we found that when uh, exon 2 was spliced out, that correlated with uh, women that had lower response to FSH. And when spliced, um, exon 6 was spliced out, some of these women had higher, no, all of these women that had this had higher response to FSH. So this is the initial clinical finding. And then, of course, we wanted to see in an in vitro system how this clinical finding correlated with the uh, in vivo phenotype. So we wanted to create an in vitro system that mimics the in vivo phenotype so we can do more tests intracellularly. What does this tell us about what's going on at the molecular level? So what we found, uh, at least for the deletion of Exxon 2 variant that we have uh, studied in more in uh, detail, is that uh, when it is co-expressed in cells together with a wild-type receptor, because all of our patients are heterozygous, so they contain both the wild-type and a variant, what we found is that this variant has an influence over the wild-type receptor that is also present there, and it reduces a little bit the signaling of that receptor, doesn't let it act as well as it would act if it was only expressed alone. How might doctors be able to use this new information in their treatment of women who are failing to conceive? For the moment, we're still on the research side, so where we're looking at is what is the effect on the cell. And uh, because we're looking at the cumulus cells, you cannot predict yet which patient will have these uh, variations. You will have to, a patient will have to go through one cycle where the, the cells are tested to see if they have this variation in uh, splicing. And then um, in the next cycle, the doctors can, can know. So one thing we will actually test soon is to see if uh, those variants will react more uh, if we add more FSH or if we add FSH in addition to another agent. This is our next aim, but for the moment, what we can tell is with the present, uh, with the present treatment with a single FSH, this variant can reduce the act of the wild type. So it can give an explanation. For the moment, we are at the point of explaining. We're not at the point of treating yet, but it can lead eventually to individualized treatment. This is our aim. That's why we started it. Maria Laliotti from Yale University in the United States. Richard Anderson chaired the session at which Maria presented her data about FSH receptor gene expression, so I asked him to give me his reactions. We were seeing differences in women who responded badly and women who responded well in terms of their FSH receptor splice variants. What might this imply clinically then? This might be used for two reasons. One, to identify women who might do well or badly, and secondly, potentially to alter your treatment protocol to treat them differently and therefore optimise their outcomes. As a first stab at what doctors might make of this, what do you think comes out of it then in terms of practice? Well, this is the, sort of an example of the whole field of pharmacogenomics where you look at a patient's characteristics, and in this case a genetic characteristic, and identify what treatment they require on the basis of, of that type of analysis rather than the more traditional type of analysis on the basis of the patient's age, their hormone profile, things like that. So you could uh, arguably separate patients into good responders and poor responders and then do what? 
Well, that might help you to identify that the poor responders, for example, you might you know, be able to counsel them differently and put them, you know, suggest them they're more likely to do badly and some of them may or may not wish to proceed on that basis. Alternatively, particularly with the high responders, they would be particularly at risk of ovarian hyperstimulation and so you might look at them with more, treat them with more caution, lower doses, cancel cycles more quickly if there were risks of OHSS, things like that. This kind of stratification and individualisation of patients, how does this fit in with other tests, conventional tests, and things like AMH. This is, would all be part of a pre-treatment patient profile that you would build up to help you identify and personalise a particular treatment regime. Do you think there is a, a one-stop test or do you have to do a whole lot of tests then? Well, at the moment, certainly, you, it seems like you have to do a whole lot of tests. I mean, ideally, what would one, one would want to do in the future is a comparison of these different tests to see which ones really were useful and which ones weren't, because some may negate others, and you might just find that actually some of them don't turn out to be clinically useful, um, but we're clearly some way away from that type of approach. And this particular paper we've just been hearing about, where would you place that in, on the level of clinical usefulness? Well, it's, I think it's, 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 it's a difficult type of a genetic analysis to do, perhaps, compared to just the more routine hormone analysis. But these things are going to become much more commonplace in time, and we're going to see this type of thing coming into routine practice, I'm sure. Now, I can't resist asking you, because I have been hearing that anti-Mullerian hormone could be a sort of one-stop shop for testing patients for, for many prognostic factors. What do you think? Well, certainly AMH looks extremely promising to try and identify good and poor responders and to be able to treat them differently. Quite how that f relates to their FSH receptor polymorphisms um, is unknown, and certainly bigger studies will need to compare the two and see which one actually comes out as the, being the really useful one. Of course, treatment protocol that we're looking here in terms of number of eggs, actually what patients of course want is to get pregnant or not get pregnant, and, and those type of analyses haven't really been done in this context. That was Richard Anderson from Edinburgh University. If you plan to use cryopreservation as a means of providing eggs without exposing your patient to more ovarian stimulation, you may be greatly reassured by data from a Danish study released at the ESHA meeting in Barcelona. The findings show longer pregnancies, higher birth weights and no increase in malformations among children born after cryopreservation. Anya Pinborg told me more. We looked at all the Danish children born after cryopreserved embryos during a 12-year period from 1995 to 2006, aiming to get uh, about 1,267 children after cryopreserved embryos. What was your aim in doing this study? The aim was to compare the data of the cryopreserved children born after cryopreservation with children born after conventional fresh IVF ICSI cycles and we and about 10,000 children after conventional fresh IVF ICSI cycles were illegible in the study. Mm. So we compared more than 1,000 frozen embryo transfer cycle children with more than 10,000 non-frozen embryo transfer, fresh embryo transfer children. Mm. Well you had a really big useful sample there, so what data came out of this? 
when we looked at the singletons only, because it's very important that there are more multiple births in the conventional fresh IVF fixed cycles. Therefore, in the primary results which we presented here at ESRA, we only looked at the singleton data. And there we found, correcting for maternal age and parity, that the singletons after frozen embryo transfer had less adverse outcome compared with the children born after conventional IVF ICSI, meaning that they had a higher birth weight, 200 gram higher in the cryopreservation group, and they had less risk of prematurity and less risk of birth weight below 2,500 gram. Furthermore, we also uh, looked at the risk of malformation, neurological sequelae and malignant diseases and found similar risk of malformations, neurological sequelae and malignant diseases in singletons born after frozen embryo transfer cycles. Now, on first hearing you say that, it sounds a little paradoxical that the frozen embryos did actually better than the other embryos. Exactly. It sounds a bit odd, but one should remember that these women and the embryos are highly selected. The women with the embryos to freeze are the good prognosis patients, and furthermore, the the embryos are the high quality, the superior embryos surviving both the freezing, the cryostorage and the thawing procedure. Mm. Further on, we don't know what exactly effect the controlled ovarian hyperstimulation, which we do in the fresh cycles, we don't know what the effect on the outcome is. And there are some indicators now that perhaps children born after controlled ovarian hyperstimulation, that there is an effect on the early implantation, the early receptivity of the endometrium and the early pregnancy is influenced by the hyperstimulation procedure. And normally, frozen embryo transfer cycles are done without controlled ovarian hyperstimulations. What's the take-home message from this for the average fertility doctor? I think the very important message is that we are reassured now, both by our results, but indeed also by a Swedish study, registered study published two years ago, showing similar results on free, uh, children born after uh, freezing uh, the embryos, that there are no increased risk. That adds to the, the or supports the, our new strategy in both Scandinavia or Nord in the Nordic countries, but also in Finland and Holland, where we, sorry, in Belgium and Holland, where there have been an increasing use of elective single embryo transfer. And we know that when we do single embryo transfer cycles, we don't have exactly the same pregnancy rates, but by adding frozen embryo transfer cycles to the fresh single embryo transfer cycles, we can have the sa similar cumulative pregnancy rates. And the, of course the concerns have been by using increasing number of frozen embryos, do we do anything uh, bad to the offspring? And I think we can reassuringly say now that we don't believe that we do that. Anja Pinborg from the Reichshospital in Copenhagen, bringing this special edition of the Audio Journal of Fertility to a close. It's been produced by Audiomedica in collaboration with Masood Afnan and the British Fertility Society. I hope you enjoyed the programme and that you'll let us know what you think about it. You can email us at fertility at audiomedica.com. I hope to be with you again soon. Until then, from me, Peter Goodwin, goodbye.